Okay. Uh, you guys got all your handouts. So as we go, so today we're talking about covenants. And uh, as we go along the class, you know, we'll start to get to know each other you know, a little bit better. Uh, one thing you'll find out quickly is that I do enjoy movies. It was like part of my family culture growing up and going to the movies, talking about movies, stuff coming out. So one of the more kind of epic sets of movies in recent history was Star Wars. And it was, uh, it's interesting that Star Wars first came out in the late 70s, still really popular today. Uh, George Lucas, you know, he came out with the middle of the story first, episodes four, five, six, and then came out with one, two, three, and then seven, eight, nine. So as part of these really big budget projects, it's of course a lot of money and time and effort, big groups, uh, a lot of people around it. Uh, they get together, they have to write out the whole story first. Uh, and they call it like the arc of the story. So this helps be sure it stays you know, with continuity, they can increase the drama. Um, so the whole thing is written out before they even film the first one. So I use this analogy because the covenants in the Bible are kind of like this. They give it a backbone, they sort of give this arc to the Bible uh, as a story. Helps us understand the big picture. The covenants really represent a central piece to theology. Um, it shows us that God has a plan in mind uh, and again gives us this, um, this arc and it really connects the Bible as a seamless story uh, which is the founding and expanding of God's kingdom. So I want to start off by talking about one of the main application points which is that we're part of this story. Uh, we're part of the new covenant, we're in the midst of the drama and it's, it's an exciting thing, and this gives us perspective. So when I, when I go through these covenants, I don't want you to see them as old and removed from us, but rather you're actually part of it. Uh, God had you in mind, and um, so it's part of our ancestry, part of our history, that we've been grafted into this. Uh, before we begin, let me go ahead and pray for us. God, you are uh, gracious, you're loving to us. Uh, we pray that we hear from you tonight. Soften our hearts. We want you to enrich our lives. Uh, speak to us tonight. We want to hear from you about the covenants and how we can apply them to our lives. Uh, I pray that, again, you use your word to bless, uh, teach us, satisfy us, God. And in, in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so the first covenant is the Noahic covenant. Uh, this is found in Genesis 9, 8 through 17. I'm going to read it real quickly. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant. I have set my bow, referring to a rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of flesh that is on the earth. So the Noahic covenant has several distinguishing characteristics. I've got them listed there for you. The first is that it's an unconditional covenant. It doesn't depend on Noah or anything they do, his descendants, to fulfill the covenant. It's so kind of like one-sided. So the promise is actually based on God's faithfulness alone. And I kind of skipped ahead there. I want to give a quick definition of a covenant. A covenant is an unchangeable legal agreement between God and man. Uh, the covenants we are talking about, God stipulates the condition. Uh, man can't really negotiate them or change the terms of agreement. 
Um, for some covenants, man can simply decide to accept or reject them. The Greek word that's used uh, for covenant is uh, diathek. I think that's how you say it. And it emphasizes that these provisions were laid down by only one of the parties. It has this connotations of a testament or a will uh, that a person would leave dictating distribution of wealth or goods after death. Um, and so we see this, again, this aspect of being an unconditional covenant with the Noahic. Uh, God promises not to destroy all flesh in the world uh, via a flood. The second distinguishing characteristic is that it was made to Noah and all his descendants and every living creature and the earth in general. And the third is that it was sealed with a sign, specifically the rainbow. So some real quick kind of highlights or applications for us is that uh, this covenant applies to us in modern day because obviously we can still see a rainbow. It can remind us of God's faithfulness and his grace. Just as God provided a way for Noah and his family to be saved on the ark, God provides us a way to be saved through Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, which satisfies God's justice. So we can be, uh, the other application or thing we can be reminded of when we think of the Noahic covenant is that um, God is holy and righteous, so he brings the flood because man is wicked. Um, so God will not allow sin to go unpunished in the end. I, this brought to mind a verse, it's uh, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is a um, quotation from actually Deuteronomy. It, this also is connected in my mind to another verse. So like since really vengeance and revenge is, and God is the one punishing sin, uh, what does he call us? Well, in Ephesians, uh, God says, uh, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Uh, so it's not really our place to be the one that's punishing sin. Um, all right, let's move on to the next covenant. So we've got the Abrahamic covenant. So the actual covenant is found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then we get a, a much more further detail provided later in Genesis 15. All right, so picking up in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, so before um, God makes his covenant, his name's Abram, and then he changes it to Abraham uh, later. So the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and, I'll make, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the covenant, interestingly enough, it's sealed with a vision and an interesting ceremony. Um, so the following is a real brief summary of Genesis 15. And we've, this is... Again, kind of going back to the movies, it'd be an interesting scene to film or see. We've got this dialogue between uh, Abraham and God. So first, so God tells him, you know, hey, go from your country. I'm going to give you land and you're going to be a blessing. So Abraham, his first response is, well, how, how are you going to make this reward so great when I don't even have any kids? I don't have any heirs. So God responds, telling him he's going to have a son. His descendants will be like the number of stars. And... I know Matt's an outdoors guy, um, and so he can appreciate, and, and you guys have all been on the hike too, where you, you kind of get away from all of the light pollution, and you get up in the mountains, and you can really see a lot more stars than you can in the city. So I imagine, I, I just you know, think of, you know, really Abraham's looking up, and of course this is ancient times, there's no light pollution. So the view of the sky is phenomenal. I mean, you're seeing dusks, a piece of dust from the Milky Way. I mean, really, it's a quite a phenomenal thing. 
and um, you know metaphor that God's saying, look, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. And he's looking up like, okay, this is <laughs> pretty cool. Um, so, okay, God promises Ab- Abram land, uh, but he responds like, how am I going to take it? And then what God does is he tells him to take specific animals and cut them up, cut them in half, lay them on either side uh, on the ground. And then God causes Abraham to fall asleep. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. So at first glance, uh, this ceremony and vision sounds a little odd. You know, cutting up animals and it's very bloody. So it's kind of this grotesque scene. So if we go from this moment of beauty looking up at the stars to uh, it gets pretty bloody pretty quickly. But you really... We talked about this uh, when we were talking about the canon in the first class. When you're reading scripture, you've got to you know, take yourself back. And you know, these are words written for specific times, specific people. So in ancient Near East times, uh, the primary means of worship you know, and religion are ritual practices that are full of symbolism. So God is actually relating to Abraham in a very a common way or a relatable way that he would he would be able to to really uh, get a hold of there's a quote here from another theologian d.a carson so he provides some more context sometimes a regional superpower would enter into a covenant with a conquered state the regional power promises protection and security and blessing and prosperity and the captured state promises obedience paying taxes on time not rebelling that sort of thing If the lesser state rebels or breaks ties with the superpower, there will be terrible judgment that follows. So the symbolism of the cut animals, the the two parties are supposed to walk between the cut animals and implicitly they're saying, let this be done to me. Let my body be cut up and trashed if I were to break the covenant. So that's the symbolism that's represented here. So the sign of this covenant is actually uh, circumcision. And so uh, God, this is where he brings circumcision to uh, the Jewish people and this is a physical representation setting them apart from uh, the other people around. So there's three main features. First is the promise of land and its dimensions are actually given in Genesis 15. This kind of precludes any notion that this is actually fulfilled in heaven, but no, it's a literal land. Uh, He promises descendants, that's number two. So again, Abraham doesn't have any kids. He's about 75 years old at this point. So this promise is amplified uh, later in Genesis 17, where God promises that nations and kings would descend from Abraham. And this promise is also linked to another covenant we're going to talk about, which is the Davidic covenant. covenant. Um, The third distinguishing characteristic is the promise of blessing and redemption. That's in Genesis 12. God promises to bless Abraham and families through him. And that promise is actually amplified in the new covenant, which we're part of, and that's um, referenced in Jeremiah 31, cross-referenced to Hebrews 8, and it's actually this fullness, this completion of Israel as God's chosen people has not been finished uh, yet. I'm I'm prepping a talk on uh, a study of the last things, eschatology, the end times, and that's, that's kind of part of it. So like Israel as a nation uh, will be converted and forgiven and restored. This is actually Paul alludes to this or talks about it specifically in Romans 11. And he says here in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. 
a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this promise is actually reaffirmed later too. So it's referenced, God brings it up again, talks about it to Isaac in Genesis 21 and 26, and also Jacob in Genesis 28. So one nuance to this covenant is that God reaffirms the promises even amidst the sin that Israel's going through. So they're not a perfect people. And they have, you know, they disobey, they leave, and judges, for example. I mean, this book is just a constant to, you know, uh, reconciling or rekindling a rediscovery of the word, and then they fall away from it for a number of years. And then the judges, another judges come and brings them back, and this, this whole cycle goes on. So it really shows that, um, you know, God has these plans and covenants in mind, uh, and really, he's, of course, at will to do uh, what he thinks is best. A very quick side note that's also kind of a, 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 mod, a very applicable thing about what's going on now is, you know, when we're reading these covenants, God got this, has this ark, these backbone, this plan. But really, the ball's in his court. And, you know, unless or until he explicitly describes his rationale or thinking, we can't really put words in his mouth. And I feel like we do that a lot, or more than we should. And so, for example, you know, with the pandemic and COVID-19, or, you know, people, to some some people have tried to directly connect, you know, this to sin going on in the world. And I think that's hard to do, because really what you're doing is you're trying to think or put rationale, you know, into God, where in reality, he doesn't think like we do. He has a different perspective than we do. So it's hard for us to like conjecture or say, this is what he's doing and why he's doing it, unless he's the one telling us. And he does sometimes in scripture, but there's times that he doesn't. And here, Paul even refers to this mystery. There is mystery to it. And another very loose analogy driving this point home is, I always talk about my kids, uh, because a lot of us have kids or we've had, you know, parents, and how really my four-year-old, you know, he, he doesn't have the capability to grasp my rationale for a lot of things. Because, you know, I'm way up here intellectually, right? And he's been down here. In the same way, God's like that above us. And actually even more so, right? So we are his children. So I also like that analogy. Um, but it really drives the point home that we can, can't claim to know always what God is thinking and why he's doing things. That's the reality. In the same way my four-year-old can't always know why I'm telling him, you know, he can't touch the stove or, um, you know, run around the neighborhood naked, <laughs> things like this, right? You know, to him, that it's okay. So you, <laughs> he can, he can, more than I can. <laughs> All right, let's move on, let's move on. All right, Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant actually is a conditional covenant. It's made between God and the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. So this is in Exodus starting in chapter 19 through 24. The Mosaic Covenant is centered around God giving his divine law to Moses. This is the Ten Commandments. And the blessing that God promises are directly related to Israel's obedience to the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 2. 
And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. So at the time of the covenant, God's reminding the people of their obligation to be obedient to his law, and the people actually agreed. And so in Exodus 19, they say, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. So context is really important uh, to, to fully understand this covenant at this exact moment. So the people of Israel have been enslaved by Egypt for several hundred years. Moses has dramatically led them out, which includes parting this, the plagues and the parting of the sea. So this is a group of individuals that have seen God work in miraculous ways and I use that word not lightly so like these are people who have seen the firstborns being killed have seen and walked through the Dead Sea so that God is bringing the law to them and they're like sign us up <laughs> right but of course we all know the you know you fast forward Moses comes down from the Ten Commandments and the people have created a golden calf and are worshiping it as an idol and claiming this idol is what brought us out of Egypt. And so what does Moses do? He actually punishes them. Well, he breaks the tablets, first of all, and then he punishes them. Uh, he, they, melt, uh, they melt the idol and he makes them eat it. Puts it in whatever food or drink, I don't know, makes him eat it. And then he's got to go back up and gets another set of the uh, Ten Commandments. Um, okay, so a couple of highlights. God promises to make Israel a kingdom of priests and holy nations, excuse me, and a holy nation. Israel to, was to be God's light to the dark world around them. Everyone around them would know that they worship Yahweh, which is the one true God, the covenant-keeping God. Two, uh, the law was not meant to save them, but salvation always came through faith. And we're going to talk more about that in the new covenant. Uh, third, although the nation of Israel did not uphold their end of the promise and they experienced consequences, God still used them to expand his kingdom and bring salvation to the world. All right, I know we're, we're grinding through here. The Davidic covenant. Uh, the Davidic covenant re uh, refers to God's promises to David through Nathan the prophet. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's later summarized in 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Chronicles 6. This is an unconditional covenant. It's made between God and David. God promises David that the Messiah, Jesus, would come from the lineage of David and the tribe of Judah. And it would, uh, that's number one. Number two, it would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. Number three, it also reaffirms the promise of land that he made in the first two covenants with Israel, Abrahamic and Mosaic. And then lastly, God then promises David's son, Solomon, will succeed him as king and that he would build the temple. So David is actually prohibited uh, as a consequence because of sin from building the temple. Uh, and he, he actually wanted to, but God said no, took it away from him and, and said, your son Solomon's going to be the one. Uh, so this is in 2 Samuel. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for, me, for my name. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So these are direct references to Christ. Obviously, he is the only one that has a kingdom that endures forever. All right, let's jump into the new covenant. So the new covenant 
is the promise that God makes with humanity that he will forgive sin and restore our relationship with him. Jesus Christ is the mediator and our representative, and his death on the cross, which is the atonement, enables the promise to be completed. The Holy Spirit seals that promise as a down payment of our future in heaven. So multiple Old Testament figures prophesy about the new covenant, such as Moses in Deuteronomy 30. Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The new covenant is also mentioned in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put on... I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So Ezekiel um, lists several aspects of the new covenant, a new heart, a new spirit, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit and true holiness, which the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, cannot provide these things, and that's in Romans 3. Here's a real interesting kind of side note too. So Mormons, um, they ha we talked, oddly enough, we talked about the Book of Mormon briefly. It's this testament of Jesus uh, to the, uh, the Americas, these indigenous people that were supposedly there. And, and actually, these, these indigenous people were descendants of Israel based on the Book of Mormon. They, somebody uh, made a ship back in the day and actually sailed over uh, and founded you know, the Americas. So what's interesting is that, so this, the, 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 um, the Book of Mormon, it's like another testament, right? So the question is, well, and it, and it changes a lot of things. So then why is it not uh, referenced? Like why isn't it brought up in the Old and New Testament that there's going to be another book, another testament? Why isn't it alluded to or referenced? And they, they have some, they have one or two um, vague references that they'll bring up. So they have a response. But the point I'm making is really the new covenant is explicitly, you know, brought up. Okay. And not only that, but it becomes clear, especially in Hebrews, that this is the original intention. When I say that, like God's plan of redemption and reconciliation was never meant to, the Mosaic law, for example, was never meant to be the end all and be all. But in reality, it's the new covenant that everything points towards. So here, actually, I have a verse that talks about that. Because um, I'm kind of, sorry, fast-forwarding. Here we go. Hebrews 10, 1. The law, referring to the Mosaic law, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So getting back more uh, on point, um, the uh, New Covenant, the Last Supper and modern day communion is actually our reminder of the New Covenant. Uh, Luke 22, 20 relates how Jesus takes the cup and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the New Covenant in my blood. Um, another important key part of the New Covenant is that it includes Gentiles and not just Jews. Paul describes Gentiles as these wild branches that are grafted into the natural olive tree, which is Israel. So Romans 11, 13 through 18. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so the, so the dough, um, it's referring to like yeast and how really the is, Israel is these, are the chosen people. They're the yeast, but we're part of this whole dough, so we're made holy as well. 
<coughs> the root, that's Israel. They're holy. So are the branches. We're the branches, the, uh, the Gentiles. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Um, the fulfillment of the new covenant is seen in two places. On earth, that's right now as we expand his kingdom, and then for all eternity, which is the new heavens and new earth. And so, of course, that hasn't been completed yet. So we're still in the midst of the new covenant. So some application. Um, I want to start again where we, or excuse me, I want to finish or reiterate where we started. Uh, we're in the new covenant. We're part of the story. We're here. God has brought us in. We're players. We're actors. He's using us. He's given us uh, these abilities, the Holy Spirit. Like we're kind of, we're part of the script to expand God's kingdom. Um, so the new covenant is the culmination, not to be confused with the completion of the covenants. And it was always the original plan uh, to be the everlasting story of redemption and not the old uh, covenant. The second application. So the understanding the covenants gives us assurance of faith. So uh, there's, here's a long quote. It's by this uh, old school 19th century writer, Andrew Murray. He's written a lot of things. Um, I believe he was a monk, but I could be wrong there. <laughs> um, he wrote this book called Two Covenants. He says, Blessed is the man who truly knows God as his God, who knows what the covenant promises him, what unwavering confidence of expectation it secures, that all its terms will be fulfilled in him. What a claim and hold it gives him on the covenant-keeping God himself. To many a man who has never thought much of the covenant, a true and living faith in it would mean the transformation of his whole life, the full knowledge of what God wants to do for him, the assurance that it will be done by an almighty power, the being drawn to God himself in personal surrender and dependence and waiting to have it done. All this would make the covenant the very gate of heaven. May the Holy Spirit give us some vision of its glory. So I want to give us some, some perspective, just a touch of this deep spiritual truth that he's touching on here. So think about this. In order for, we talked about, in order for the Star Wars movies to really work, the whole thing's got to be written out in advance. In the same way, for this story of redemption to function, God's got to plan it out accordingly from creation to redemption to the new heavens and new earth. So to keep this in mind, God, without creation with all his foreknowledge, knew the sin that you would have in your life and how to perfectly reconcile us to him and you cannot foil that plan. And it's really giving you this assurance of faith that you know, you're in his family, you're sealed, and you're, you're saved. Last point, uh, application. Understanding the covenants should make us shift our focus to the everlasting life, i.e. new heavens, new earth. God has revealed the end of the ark for the story, but the resolution has yet to come. So in Philippians 3.19, Paul, he's speaking of non-believers here, speaking of non-believers at first, he says, they think only about this life here on earth, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we eagerly, we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. 
He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. And then here's Jesus speaking in Matthew 6:19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, these are serious, uh, I'm going to say philosophies that change your everyday perspective, your conversations, how you interact with people, how you react to things that God brings into your life, you know, discipline, difficult situations. This, again, goes back to these covenants that God has promised us. Um, Last thing, guess what? There's a bonus covenant. (laughs) Bonus covenant. All right. So there are some theologians, and I do agree with this, uh, is that there is a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. So some of the highlights is that um, part of the covenant is that mankind, male and female, are creating God's image, that God gives us dominion to rule over the animal kingdom. He gives us a directive to reproduce and inhabit, inhabit the earth. Uh, initially, he says mankind is to be vegetarian, but later, of course, eating meats established with the Noahic covenant. Um, and then also a big piece to that covenant is eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is forbidden uh, with death as the stated penalty. It's in Genesis 2, also in Genesis 3. As a result of breaking this covenant, of Adam and Eve breaking the covenant, there's a curse and sin is introduced. There's going to be um, pain in childbirth, marital strife, enmity between Satan and Eve and her descendants. Uh, It's a struggle to survive. Death is introduced, a separation from God, and uh, death is an inescapable fate of all all things. Um, I really appreciate you guys coming out tonight. I want to hear from you all.